Well, if you're just joining us this week, it's an interesting chapter in Mark's gospel to come along in because Jesus is talking about the end of the world. So that's really exciting. But we've been on this long journey with Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And we've been in recent weeks in this section of Mark's gospel where Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, this really big and important thing that he's been preparing for for a long time has happened. And things in Jerusalem, they're not how they ought to be. His entry was celebrated. But by the time he came to the temple, well, the party seemed to be over. The temple, meant to be a place of life and of renewal, was found to be a place of dead religion. And what should have been a house of prayer for all nations, it looked more like a marketplace or maybe a tourist trap. Jesus has spoken a parable against the religious leaders, wicked tenants who are trying to make something which they're only caretakers of into their own. And we've been challenged to think about how some of these things are true in each of our lives as well. How we are wicked tenants in God's vineyard still today more concerned with getting what we figure is due to us than caring for that which has been temporarily entrusted to us. We have been challenged to realize that how we follow Jesus, we should be a people overflowing with life who bring goodness to our neighborhoods, to the city. But like the fig tree whose leaves are there but no fruit is present, we've realized that sometimes all of our faith is more of a show than any real indicator of God's presence in the world. Jerusalem, Jerusalem and the temple were meant to be the center of religious and spiritual life for the Jewish people, for the people of Israel. But they've been found wanting. More than wanting, in fact, Jesus says that they're dangerous. Yes, dangerous. At the end of last week's chapter, chapter 12, Jesus warns a large crowd, beware the teachers of the law. Why beware? Why this need to be careful? Because they devour widows' houses. They harm the poor and they do so for their own gain. It's not just the temple. There's corruption at the root. But the disciples, the disciples, they would have been taught since childhood the goodness of the temple, that this is the place of God's presence for God's people, the place where God and humanity can come together and be reconciled to one another, that the temple is the place where the world is first set right. And now they've been confronted with the harsh truth that the temple is not a vision of the world set right. But in fact, the temple is a very tangible reminder of everything that's still wrong with this world. Imagine the cognitive dissonance that these disciples must have felt. It must have been overwhelming. They grasp for something to appreciate about the thing that they've been taught is good since they were born. 
and the thing that they've just experienced is not. And so, looking over the city of Jerusalem from a nearby mountain, they marvel at the size of the stones. They comment about the magnificence of the buildings. Even if these buildings are filled with wicked leaders who abuse their power, it's still the temple of God. It's still a reflection of the beauty of God's goodness. They're trying to resolve this conflict within them. How can something that they've been told is so good be so very, very rotten? Well, Jesus, he doesn't let them linger in that admiring thought for too long. If you read the beginning of this chapter, it seems like a harsh transition from look at the size of the stones and how magnificent are these buildings to Jesus saying not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus rips them out of their attempt to reconcile their experience and what they've been taught. This Lord who cursed the fig tree for looking right but but not really having any fruit, he now predicts the demise of this tree with beautiful leaves but no fruit to be seen. This city with magnificent buildings but wickedness at its heart. I don't have to tell you, you could probably guess that this prediction, it's problematic for the disciples. These disciples have their hopes set on a restored and renewed Jerusalem with a new high priest who's no longer appointed by Rome, but appointed by God. And more than just a new high priest, a new king who will sit on David's throne and restore the kingdom to Israel. This is the longing of their hearts. But now Jesus says that this city will not be restored. It will be destroyed. Its temple will not be renewed to its former glory. In fact, no stone will be left on stone. Imagine their disappointment. Imagine their internal wrestling with this hope of their hearts taken from them. What could they now turn to? Would dismay overwhelm them? Perhaps you have known a time when it was clear that your deepest hopes would never be. The career that you imagined for yourself, the family that you hoped for, the school that you applied to, These things didn't materialize. Or maybe it's that the political party you aligned yourself with, they turned out to be more interested with the status quo than you'd hoped. Or the treatment that you sought wasn't a cure for the disease you suffer from. Or the purchase that you made, well, it didn't make you as happy as you had imagined it would. Disappointment overwhelms us. Hopes which we have held precious in our hearts are quickly shattered by the harsh truths of reality. And so Jesus warns his friends against being quick to place their hopes in things. 
He says false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. False messiahs and false prophets, false hopes. They prey on the hope of people who long for a better world and do not know where to turn. And these false messiahs and false prophets are not only the cult leaders that I'm sure quickly sprang to our imaginations. What of the false messiah of capitalism? The Messiah which promises that only by a free market will the poor be saved, offering a salvation which will never be. What of the false prophet of nationalism that somehow we here in Canada or somewhere else have cracked the code to human flourishing in a way that no other people and no other nation can? And if only they were more like we are a false prophet leading us to false hopes. We want to believe what we are promised. We want to hope for a better world, and we're quick to hope for the simplest way we can imagine to that thing, to solve the problems that we know. But we must be on our guard, Jesus says, because these false saviors and these false prophets, they come at a cost. They offer us comfort in the familiar. They offer us hope in something that we can know and we can quickly judge for ourselves if it seems to be working. But they really conceal the work of God in the world. They lead us far from the place where Jesus is and far from the ways of his kingdom. But when our false hopes fail us, That's when we need to find true hope. When the disciples are told that this temple will be destroyed and all their hopes from all their lives flee from them, they need to know where they can find hope for flourishing life. And so Jesus says that following the distress of wars and earthquakes and famines, he he says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like good news to place new hope in. That sounds like more trouble and more distress. In fact, this seems to be even more things that we can sometimes put our hopes into. New new things that are so often a source of false hope. I wonder, do you trust that the sun will rise tomorrow? This is a saying of a sure thing, isn't it? But Jesus is warning us that even this cannot be guaranteed. Do you know that the moon will shine tonight? Jesus suggests you can't be so sure. Do you believe that the stars can guide you in life, whether that's by navigation or by astrology? Jesus says even the stars will fall. And even the heavens will shake. Even what we have always known and have always been able to trust in will fail us. And so when this happens, what are we to do? But at that time, Jesus says, 
People will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Those images of sun and moon concealing their light, they come from countless places throughout the Old Testament, and they're images of the coming day of the Lord. When God returns, everything that shines will hide its face from him, for his face shines so much more brilliantly. When God returns to the earth, nothing can stand before him, and so even the mountains will tremble and bow. Jesus says that these things, these signs, are not meant to scare us, are meant to be good news of his return. The Son of Man will return. The day of the Lord will come, even when everything else fails you, even when your last hope is dashed. God will certainly return. This is our hope. The signs of all these other things faltering and failing is meant to be for us but a reminder of the one thing that will never fail, the picture of all things giving due honor and glory to the maker of all. We saw Jesus enter Jerusalem on a donkey, on a symbol of peace humbly accepting what the city of death would offer to him, listening to the shouts of save us from gathered pilgrims ignorant of what they needed saving from. And Jesus will return, but now in a truly triumphal entry, first imagined by Daniel in his prophecies, from which all the scattered peoples of the earth will be gathered together, and the cries of save us will come from a people who truly know the depths from which they need saving. Jerusalem did not receive its king when he first entered it. The temple did not worship its own God. But one day creation itself will celebrate that great and glorious day of the Lord. The question, the question that the disciples asked asked at the beginning of this chapter that probably we've all forgotten by now, even if we did read it in advance. They asked, when will these things happen? And they're referring to Jesus's prediction of the temple's destruction. And so after Jesus taught them and us an important lesson about where our hope is really placed, now he addresses that the destruction of the temple is no more bad news for them than anything else which happens in our world. And he finally answers them, truly I tell you this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Truly I tell you. Jesus is emphasizing the truth of his claim and this might concern us because we can say that the Son of Man coming on clouds in glory, that didn't happen before Jesus' contemporaries had all died. But the signs for that, they did happen. The temple was destroyed by Rome. Wars raged, earthquake and famine and family trouble all alike. All these things, all these signs happened before that generation passed away. And barring the destruction of the temple, which has never been rebuilt, all of these things, they seem to happen every day. 
They have happened in every generation of people who follow Jesus because all of us have been given the signs of Jesus' return. We who follow Jesus today have all lived lives while these kinds of events which Jesus says are coming have happened. Just like every generation before us. We're meant to be understanding here that we need to be always prepared Because as I was joking with my home church, it's going to feel like a Tuesday when Jesus comes. You know, like another war in the news, more famine, more trouble, Tuesday. We need to always be ready. We see the signs throughout history. Every generation has had them. Rome destroyed the temple and then Rome itself fell. A new religion was formed in the Middle East. Crusades and hundred-year wars raged. World wars and Cold War with the threat of mutually assured destruction and the extinction of our species. The fall of the Soviet bloc, 9-11, economic collapses, wildfires, hurricanes, earthquakes, and volcanoes, cycles of pandemics and plagues. Now, most recently, war in Ukraine. Wars and rumors of wars. These happen every day. We're reminded that we have no peace until God himself becomes our peace. Natural disasters, all nature suffers under the weight of sin until creation itself is restored. We seem to be always on the edge of one empire falling and another rising up. Of one way that people have found meaning and purpose collapsing and a new vision of the world filling its void. How precarious our lives are. And yet, not so for us who wait for Jesus. Not so for us because Christ invites us not to be alarmed by these things. They are signs that our hope cannot be in family or nation, in career or retirement, in the stars or in the earth itself, because all of these things are passing away. Heaven and earth themselves will pass away until that time when God's word heals and restores and sets right until that time when our hope is in the words of Christ, which will never pass away, because they alone, his words alone, are the words of eternal life. So if we're not supposed to be alarmed, when everything around us fails, when all of our hope is lost, when turmoil and distress surrounds us, if we're not supposed to be alarmed and we're not supposed to be worried What are we to do in the face of such overwhelming trouble? As every other source of hope is taken from us, where do we turn? Jesus invites us to remain alert. We remain alert. We remain focused on the one who is our singular source of hope, Jesus Christ. We hold out hope for his return and the kingdom that he will bring with him. And instead of being discouraged by the troubles of this world, Jesus offers to us these things as a sign of his coming. Every time we know trouble in our lives, we should be reminded that one day Jesus will return 
and this is his sign. A sign which has been seen plainly throughout the whole history of the world. We see in these repetitions the truth that nothing else will set these things right except for the one who first came to be with us and to save us. He came to us and he told us everything we must know in order that we can persevere in hope and in faith in him. This is what it is to be on guard, to guard our hearts against the drift in their hopes, so fickle and easily moved, so easily changed from one disappointment to another. This is what it is to be alert, to know the words of the Lord which will never pass away, and to cling to them as the only thing which is eternal in a world where even what is certain can change in an instant, as we've all become painfully aware of in these last two years. This is what it is to watch, to keep our gaze on the author and perfecter of our faith, whose faithfulness to us persists throughout all the troubles we now know, and whose coming in glory will gather us to himself, that we might find in him our every hope fulfilled and our greatest good made real. Dear friends, hear the words of your coming Lord. What I say to you, I say to everyone. Watch. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Before we come to this table, we want to give you time to reflect. Reflect on what false hopes are you naturally drawn to. Recognize that they will fail you and pray that Jesus would be your true and full hope. That's what this table is about, coming to the one who is our hope. And so we'll give you just a moment or two to pray and to reflect. Reflect.